Is that all? Welcome back. It's episode 142 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and New School of Law, a facility only breached by protesters once, and that was a particularly surly group that just wanted more Roman law content. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and guy who's angling for that Kardashian time slot on the E-Network, and I am joined, as always, by the Han and Chewy of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. And uh, guys, I mean, maybe you abandon the host chat in a time like this, but, you know, we don't only inform a nation, we also entertain them and when the universe gives us content, I'm not going to turn it away, which is why before we turn to the chaos that is gripping the country, I feel duty bound to turn to an important matter of international relations directed, of course, at our resident foreign policy analyst, Mr. John Yu. John, news broke over the holiday break, and you were, of course, the first person that came to mind, that McDonald's in China is testing out a new sandwich comprised of two spam patties topped by crushed Oreos and mayonnaise. Now, the virtue of doing a program like this for as long as we've done it is that you really learn the contours of your colleagues' personalities, which is why I know how to phrase the resulting question. Do you regard this as the best McDonald's idea ever or the best McDonald's idea of all time? <laughs> you know, you, you say this to me like I didn't already know about this. <laughs> of course I'm on top of all pork-related products and their introduction is in the McDonald's menu. I've been following this closely. I I actually admire them because I wish eventually the McRib sandwich would evolve into some kind of spam-based product available widely at all the Golden Arches. The only thing I would have asked for would be to separate the Oreos from the rest of it. Can you imagine how good two spam patties, mayonnaise, and a roll would be? You think the Oreos are the problem? Uh, I, I, the mind boggles. The mind boggles. I, I assume that the reason that it's all combined is that the Chinese are in a rush, so they want to get the dessert in at the same time <laughs> as the main course. God help us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I tried. I, I, I just want to point out, in my fancy, my fancy-pantsy neighborhood in Berkeley, I went by uh, the grocery store just a few days ago, and not only were the shelves cleared of toilet paper and bounty and all the stuff that was gone during the summer, but every can of Spam was sold out. Every can, even in the gourmet ghetto in Berkeley, all gone. That's so real people, people come home when, when there's a time of crisis. Look, I'm going to pass on this particular question. As <laughs> so right. long as they continue to serve the chicken nuggets, I think I'll be safe at McDonald's. Well, that's good, man. Well, okay. I, I, I delayed the pain as much as I could. And I, and I obviously want to talk about what happened at the Capitol the other day. But, but so much has transpired since last we talked. It, it's a sign of how upside down the world is that things were actually happening in Washington around the holidays that I, I think we need to rewind the tape a little bit. So let's go back to what precipitated all this, the dispute over certifying the electoral votes that preceded everything the other day. And uh, Richard, this is all probably terra incognita for the lay listeners. Let's just let's just parse the claims, no matter how outlandish they may be. 
because they had currency with a significant swath of the country. Mm-hmm. Start with the the vice president's role. The president suggested that Vice President Pence could intervene in the process of certifying the votes. Now, the, the Constitution does provide a role for the vice president in this process. Could it extend that far? Um, anything is possible in constitutional law. Um, and so what happens is you might be able to invent a textual ambiguity on this in which the word count gives you the right to decide whether or not the the ballots are countable or not. One of the things that happens whenever you deal with questions like this is that the question of uniform practice becomes extremely important in the way in which you construe these particular provisions. And the basic theory, which goes for a very long period of time, is that you allow these things to be resolved by the way in which they've been done before, and you don't allow deviation to take place because if it's done 20 times, anybody else who wants to deviate from it is going to be accused of opportunism. Anybody who conforms with it will not. And I think that this is an extremely strong argument that custom and usage does this. And I think that it ought to apply in this case. And I think that's exactly what Pence referred to. To give you a kind of analogy, uh, the United States Constitution is filled with lots of holes. One of the holes, surprisingly enough, is the question of whether or not the president or the Congress gets to decide which foreign nations are to be recognized under American law and to some extent under international law. And you can't find anything strong in the text. And so what you tend to do in cases like that is you go back to the history of practice and see that the president, John will love this, tends to have a dominant role in foreign affairs. And you fill the gap by saying he's the person who's in charge of recognition. And what you then do is go through past practice to see how it was done. And that's what you ought to do in this case. And it's extremely important that Pence do it by himself rather than forcing this thing to liquidation. And Trump has always been contemptuous of practice. His entire presidency is essentially saying, you form a convention, I could break it. Sometimes these things are helpful, but on matters of constitutional order and decorum, they're not. And so I think Pence did exactly the right thing. John, I I actually have a different view. Uh, I actually think Trump had a better case, but not on these facts. So if you look at the 12th Amendment, and let me turn to practice in a second, but if you just look at the text of the 12th Amendment, it says that the vice president opens the ballots in the active tense. And then it says, and then they they shall be counted. And the the votes shall then be counted is the phrase in the 12th Amendment. It's, as you'll notice, it's in the past tense and passive tense. It doesn't say who counts them. What it doesn't do is it doesn't give a role to Congress. It just says the vice president opens the ballots in the presence of the Senate and the House. And so uh, one thing, there's two questions here. One is uh, who decides if there's a dispute? And this is what I mean about the facts. Suppose the facts were different. Suppose they were like in 1876. Suppose you had two sets of electoral votes coming from the same state. You know, and this happened with several states in 1876. You know, the vice president opens. He has he's the presiding officer. Which ballots does he choose? Or suppose that uh, there's actually open, almost like civil war disorder in these states. Uh, you know, or suppose, as was the case, I think in 1876, there was widespread suppression of, say, the black vote. Back in 1860, right. the vice president to take any note of that at all when he decides whether to open it up. So that's so I think actually, and actually, if you read Pence's letter 
carefully, he doesn't claim that all the vice president does is open the letters, essentially, and makes no judgment. He just said there's no facts here that would justify a vice president exercising. But then, and then the second question is, why does Congress get to have a role? Uh, the 12th Amendment doesn't provide for one. Uh, I would say, actually, there's a good argument that this Electoral Count Act, which was what you saw working out a few days ago, where a member of the House and the member of Senate have to object, and then both houses of Congress retreat to their own chambers and argue, and then they come back together again and vote with a, a, any votes about whether to reject the electoral. That's not provided for in the 12th Amendment. Why does Congress get to decide? I think actually there's an important uh, principle at stake. Uh, whether you whether you think the vice president should have any role or not is making sure Congress has no role, because the thing that the founders did not want was for Congress to pick the president. And if Congress has this power that they're claiming the Electoral Count Act and that you saw it work two days ago to decide which electoral votes are valid or not, Congress could, over time, turn that into a power to block the electoral votes when they don't like the person who's been chosen as president. So I actually, I think with many things with Trump, I think there actually is a valid legal argument behind there somewhere, but he ruined it by claiming it when it didn't apply because there's no there's no cases of multiple electoral votes coming from the same states. There's no different slates. There's no, you know, uproar, unrest, different state governments at work here. So I just don't think there's any facts present the, that would justify the, the Electoral Count Act, we should point out, this is, so that's from the 1880s. It's actually a reaction to what happened in 1876. And Richard, 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 to that point, I mean, there, there were calls from some of the ejecting Republicans for Congress to set up a commission to investigate the fairness of the vote. And there was a commission impaneled once before in American history to resolve a presidential election. That was the 1876 race. So had this thing actually had legs, would would that have been possible to create a commission here? What are the limits of what Congress could do? First of all, I'm, I'm going to go back and, you know, John basically forced me to do something which I hadn't done closely enough, um, is uh, actually read the words of the f- amendment. Yes, yes um, that is a victory. After um, it says the president of the Senate, the that would be the vice president, in the presence of the Senate of the House of Representatives, they are just there as observers, shall open all the certificates and the vote shall be counted. There is something in the English language known as the constitutional passive. And the reason we hate the constitutional passive is we have no idea of who the actor is. And so it turns out, for example, in the beginning of Article 1, it says a legislation power here and granted, but we don't know who the grantor is. Is it the people or is it the state? And it turns out in the history of American constitutional law, that kind of question really makes a difference. Uh, but I think, in effect, if you've got the anonymous passive, what they clearly can't say, it's got to be the Congress who does this counting of the House or the Senate, because they're mentioned further on in this test. I, I think they regard that as purely a ministerial function to be done by some nameless official who deserves the passive voice, which means, in effect, that there is no discretion. The president of the Senate does not have the power to count the ballots. It turns out they shall be counted, probably by some kind of a clerk. And then you go back to Madison, Marbury and Madison, and you realize that uh, one of uh, Chief Justice Marshall's central distinction was between discretionary and ministerial acts. And this then counts as a ministerial act, given the fact that there's no act to do it, which means that the analogy to receiving foreign ambassadors or something like that is simply inappropriate. So I think 
Pence is right. Um, I certainly think that there are lots of things that you want commissions for. But again, uh, one of the things you would mention is at the time of the original Constitution and the time of the 1804 situation, this thing was done in March, was a change in power, I think March 4th or 5th. Well, at that point, you got yourself another month and a half, and you could put together a commission. The thought that you would put together a commission uh, a few days before the actual transfer of power is simply ludicrous under the circumstances. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't know how to lose. And uh, the old expression being a sore loser as a form of retro, you know, of criticism, uh, certainly in his case, really starts to apply. I think Pence did exactly the right thing. And I think the count went off. And I regard the greatest risk to the succession has already been passed. And now the only question is, how does one cabin in Trump's anger over the next 12 days? Right. And that was actually where I was going to go next, because in the aftermath of this, we've got cabinet secretaries and administration officials stepping down. We've got both Democratic leaders in Congress pushing the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment, which it sounds like he's been resistant to, talks about reigniting impeachment and potentially barring the president from holding office again. And then this morning, no less than the editorial page of The Wall Street Journal calling on the president to resign. Uh, John, I'll start with you. Are you supportive of any of those steps? No. <laughs> and, and some of them would be worse than the immediate object of uh, punishing uh, Donald Trump for you know, inciting this attack on the Capitol. Um, I, first, let me say, I agree with Richard. I think the hero here, the person who did the exactly right thing is Pence, because whether it's ministerial or discretionary, it does depend on there being some doubt about the authenticity and the legitimacy of the electoral votes. And I just don't think there were any grounds to question. It. And one of the beauties of the system is that our Constitution really doesn't give Congress or the sitting president any role, I think, in choosing uh, the winner of the election. It's all dispersed to the states. So Pence saw these ballots. They're all certified by the proper authorities in the states. There's no doubt about the state governments there. Then I think Pence did the right thing. And, you know, he might have very well sacrificed his political career uh, if he was hoping to run with Trump's blessing someday. That's certainly not going to happen. But but he did it to perform his constitutional role. Um the second thing is I don't think the 25th Amendment is a good idea. I think, I think it's a terrible idea. So I think the 25th Amendment is based on the idea that the vice president, who has to trigger the process, joined by a majority of the cabinet, decide that the president is not able to carry out the duties of the office. It's not to be used because you think the president has made a bad decision or a series of bad decisions or he has the wrong policies. You have to show that the that President Trump is somehow physically or mentally disabled. Uh, you know, the idea of it was originally because you might have, for example, Dwight Eisenhower going having a heart attack and going to the hospital, and need, and the Constitution didn't have a procedure needed one so that Richard Nixon could be Nixon could be acting president, or John F. Kennedy being assassinated but still being alive for some period of time, or as we saw when it's actually been used, you know, Ronald Reagan. You know, having to go into the hospital for procedure. And so George H.W. George Bush being acting president. Here, I don't think there's a, I mean, we're not doctors, we're not there examining him, but I think Trump just made a series of terrible decisions, but I don't think he's, he's certainly not physically incapable. And I don't, I mean, unless he's like seriously mentally deranged, you know, in an obvious way for a physician to find I don't think he meets the terms of the 25th Amendment. I actually think impeachment is the root. The only reason you're not seeing impeachment being used is that the president's only there for another 12, 13, 12, 13, 12 days. 12 from days. Today. Now. 12 days. You wouldn't be able to do it. So I actually think 
what might happen is the proper sanction, which would be uh, the House could impeach President Trump. He would be the only president impeached twice in history. Uh, the Senate, though, doesn't have enough time, I don't think, to really hold a meaningful trial. And he'll leave office with that stain on his record of having been impeached twice. There's other people who are proposing prosecuting him uh, after he leaves office, uh, which I, you know, it is possible, right? The, uh, you know, the, the Constitution actually specifically, I think, contemplates the idea of prosecuting a president after she or he has left office. Uh, then you have the interesting question about pardons and their effects, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But maybe that's also a possible solution is whether there's going, you know, I'm sure there will be some kind of investigation. The U.S. attorney, I, I should add, in uh, D.C., you know, who is, you know, works for the Justice Department, which works for President Trump, has said that they will investigate President Trump for incitement, along with the people they're going to arrast who actually broke into the Capitol. Richard, and, uh, but let me just mention one thing. Lisa Murkowski became the first GOP senator to call on Trump to resign. This is about an hour ago. And so I think the resignation route may start to increase in terms of its probability. I'm not sure, but it does give at least Trump the ability to avoid impeachment in the short run. Um, as I mentioned to you, Troy, before the show, the sort of two impeachment provisions, and they don't quite mesh in terms of whether or not there's sanctions that could be uh, attached to impeachment of a president if he's impeached only after he leaves office. Yes. Can, but, I, can I set that up for a moment, Richard? Because I think that's an important, an important point. So there was this phraseology that you saw in a lot of places as a reaction to what was going on in Capitol Hill the other day. And it was impeach, remove, bar from office. So can you explain that last part? Because we just tend to think of removal from office as the wages of a successful impeachment. So walk us through the legal mechanics of the bar from office part. Okay. Well, look, what happens is there are two provisions that deal with this. And one of them is contained in Article 1. And it starts to say the president should have the sole power to try all impeachments. And they talk about oath and affirmation and the chief justice. And then it says judgment in the case of impeachment shall not extend further than to the removal of office and disqualification to hold and have office. And then you could be subject to indictment after you're impeached. Um, and remember, the, the president cannot have a self-pardon in an impeachment place. If you then just look at the provision in the Article 2 stuff, it doesn't talk about those various kinds of subsequent complications that could start to take place. It just simply says that he shall be removed. So it says in Section 4, uh, the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It does not have that other phrase in there which talks about uh, preventing him disqualifying from office. So which of these two things dominate? My guess is it is probably the Article 1-1 because it applies to all impeachments. Uh, but somebody could argue that the, the special case of the president has other rules that have to be enjoyed and, and taken into account, and that Section 4 of Article 2, uh, in fact, deals with it. I just put this forward. I hope we never come to this. My general view about this is, I think the most important thing to do is to get this incident behind us. And if there's a trial that you could have after Trump leaves office on, say, starting in January, it can go for years. It will tie up the Senate. It will tie up the politics, tie up the Justice Department. Enough is enough. It's not that he deserves any kind of mercy, but leave him to the criminal process if that's going to be there. And I think incitement of riot is certainly a very, very credible charge. And whether or not uh, presidential immunity applies to incitement cases, well, I'll let a learned lawyer like John, you answer that question, because I think we think we've never been there. 
there before. Have yes. we, Professor You? <laughs> oh, thanks for sticking me with the easy questions. <laughs> well, I'm perfectly reasonable. Mm-hmm. John, uh, let me ask you this. There were reports in the wake of the violence that it was Vice President Pence and not President Trump who gave the order to deploy the National Guard. The president contradicted that in his most recent remarks, but it comes from administration sources. There's also news today, Speaker Pelosi saying that she has talked to the uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about safeguards around the president trying to access the, the nuclear codes. I mean, how should we think about the legal framework around this where it feels like, I mean, if we're to take any of this literally, that the, the chain of command is breaking down? I was very interested. I saw those reports, too. And one of my um, areas of uh, uh, academic interest is uh, civilian control of the military. Uh, and I didn't – I I think that if those reports are true, that there, uh, there's been a violation of the Constitution. I don't think that the vice president has the constitutional authority to order the military around. Now, if the vice president is just communicating on behalf of the president, you know, the president gave the orders, but the vice president is the, you know, is essentially the, essentially the phone or the email that transmits it, just like the chief of staff could have uh, done it instead. I think that's perfectly fine. I also uh, don't think that the speaker of the house or any member of Congress should be involved with trying to interfere with the chain of command. I mean, if the if Pelosi really thinks that the president is mentally incapable of right, serving as commander in chief, you know, she said in public she doesn't want uh, Trump launching a nuclear attack on anybody, then she should then she should start impeachment proceedings immediately. But, the, uh, the impeachment call, but she should be calling the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, trying to you know undermine this you know, civilian control of the military. So the the, the, the last thing. Uh, you know, the last thing about this is, you know, it's it's very interesting. Just there's a historic. The old, I was trying to think of when has this ever happened before, and so I went and looked it up. And there was um, at the end of Watergate, people were similarly worried about Nixon's mental health, and so it didn't. Nobody knew it at the time, but it came out afterwards that I believe it was Al Haig, who was at that time chief of staff. And also a general, I believe, still at the same time. Um, he did not resign uh, his position in the military. Um, he essentially, if I believe what happened is he told the Pentagon not to accept, not to, he didn't say it this way, he said not to immediately execute any orders from the president directly unless they checked with Haig too to make sure that they were valid, which is kind of close to what Pence has done here, perhaps, is that Pence, maybe they said to the military, double check with us before you carry out an order. We'll go back to Trump and make sure he really wants to do it. And then he's uh, you know, staying. Gonna... I still think any interference beyond that is a dangerous attack, even though it's on the, on the civilian control of the military, even though it is, you know, the facts of Trump cause people to consider these things. I think it's a, it damages the principle in the longer run. Oh, well, let me, I disagree with that, at least in part. First of all, if the issue is civilian control, that is not sacrificed. If it, the power informally devolves itself upon Pence as opposed to on the president, it's still a form of civilian control. And secondly, I think it's utterly improbable that uh, 
Pence is acting as a missionary or a spokesman for the president. My guess is given the vengeful nature of Donald Trump that uh, basically Pence is persona non grata. I think it's more likely if anything happened, if the two of them met afterwards, uh, that Trump took it within his power to say, I can fire the vice president of the United States, even though it's an independent office, as we well know. Um, And so I don't think that there's any kind of conduit or go between a liaison function that's starting to take place. And the third point I would make is this is a situation in which dire necessity starts to exist. Uh, The instability that we had with respect to Nixon was not uh, broadcast in the kind of virulent attacks that he made on all sorts of other people. And there is a kind of a rule that exists, uh, I think, even in constitutional law, uh, that abject emergencies often lead to the smallest deviation in constitutional order that is necessary to avert that particular kind of crisis that goes back. Uh, you began, of course, with Roman law, Troy, rightly so, as it turns out. Um, but the, the basic All Roman right. law principle has always been that necessity suspends uh, the standard rules of property and the standard rules of institutional offices. Uh, figuring out what is a necessity is something which has to be construed very narrowly, uh, but I can't think of a definition that has any meaning that doesn't sort to say that Donald Donald Trump is going to be part and part of that situation. Now, uh, one of the things that might happen is, will Trump say anything further about Pence or will Pence say anything further about Trump? Um, I think what uh, I would hope that the president would do if he's not going to resign is to say that I I want everybody to understand that when it comes to the dealing with the military, I do delegate the vice president as my agent. But I think that's beyond possibility. But generally speaking, again, under Roman law principles, you'd rather have a voluntary transfer of power within the executive branch than a coercive one. Uh, But I think Trump is simply beyond all this. I think he hates everybody so much uh, that it is not possible for him to do anything other than to break a television set uh, when he starts to see the adverse stuff coming against him. Uh, There is going to be absolutely no one anywhere in public life who will support him. That is the right conclusion. The issue isn't whether or not he's undeserving. The issue is how you minimize the dislocation over the next 12 days. And I think if we can get Trump out of office with a resignation, uh, not having an impeachment thereafter is a very low price to pay in order to secure an orderly transition. It's uh, amazing that all of this is pushed out of the news, the story that was dominating last weekend, which was the release of the audio of the president pressuring Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia secretary of state, to find him the votes he needed to win the state. President going on and on with these conspiracy theories about how the election had been stolen from him there. And John, uh, well before the Capitol was breached, there were people saying that that was an impeachable offense. What's your take on that? I thought people went too far on this. I mean, I read the whole transcript of the call um, rather than just the uh, one or two quotes in the paper. Uh, it was certainly inappropriate. Uh, and there's, it, was, and it was actually kind of sad because there's nothing Trump can actually do about a state certifying the electoral votes. That's sort of the point I was trying to make earlier, that the electoral college system, what's beauty is that it really is the states that run the system that picks a president. Um, but, you know, these claims that Trump was engaged in violations of federal law by trying to right, coerce, conspire, I guess, with uh, state officials or others to invent votes or to suppress other votes. I mean, I, I didn't see that in the call. I mean, most of the most of the call is 
Trump kind of acting more like a candidate who's complaining and trying to say, well, did you think of this? Did you look at that? Um, rather than saying, please help me make up ballots or please help me destroy ballots. I, I really don't think it went that far. And so, again, I think and it's similar to my answer with the question of the rioting and attack on the Capitol. It's, you know, Trump's term is going to be over in 12 days. I don't think that it's worth, uh, you know, triggering these extraordinary methods like the 25th Amendment for impeachment uh, to handle it. I think these things, his term will end and then he'll be out of office. You know, his constitutional, he will no longer be the president after noon on January 20th. And then that's the way his term ends. In glory, I might add. Um, the, it, it's really difficult to comprehend what he hoped to achieve when he started to abuse the Secretary of State. Um, go back to the beginning. Uh, there was obviously from day one, that is Wednesday morning, uh, the very obvious fact that Trump had gone, at, when you went to sleep on Tuesday night, Trump had a substantial lead in key states. And then when you woke up on Wednesday morning, Biden was the president-elect. And so you need some kind of an explanation. And many of these explanations can be offered. Uh, what happened is if Trump wants to think that this is going to be the source of a genuine form of dislocation, he cannot assemble a team after the election has taken place. He has to have his team assembled long before the election has taken place. He has to identify the hot spots, has to identify the kinds of theories on which he can go, and then start to push this thing forward. Uh, so there was always a helter-skelter campaign that was going on, and he didn't do himself any favors because he made certain charges that were obviously wrong. And so what happened is if you were anti-Trump, you stress those and ignore the others. The most difficult case to look at is the videos. I have no idea whether they're true or false. Uh, what happened in Atlanta, which was in Georgia, of course, where they vacated the place in which the ballots were counted. And there are pictures of uh, one of the Biden workers remaining there taking a suitcase or a box out from underneath the counter, which is said to contain ballots. I mean, obviously, that is something which you have to deal with. What I found so difficult about this process, it's not the Trump point, is that you only had people talking past one another. What I would have loved to have seen was some public debate between a Trump supporter and a Trump opponent in which they put these various allegations forward and try to explain them. Now, the reason that this is so difficult is that traditional patterns were extremely unreliable because given the huge increase in the number of mail ballots that had taken place and the rather uncertain rules by which these particular ballots would be counted, it's quite possible that you could have huge runs of very, very large number of Biden votes coming in after Trump is ahead because what you did is you found a whole cache of these things, uh, downloaded them into the system all at once, and so a Trump lead would vanish. And if that's the case, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with what has gone on. But I find that this is very, very uneasy uh, because I don't think the right procedures were followed by anybody. Um, we know that, what, close to 40% of Republican voters actually think that there was something acopacetic, something wrong with this. The other thing we don't know is how much of a difference did it make um, in the outcome in particular states, particular counties, and so forth. Um, it's very, very hard to tell. But the point of this is once you have gone through all of this, even if the procedures are defective, they are certainly not corrupt. 
and the principle of race judicator applies. And that's part of this tradition uh, that Pence was trying to respect. And one of the things about Donald Trump is he never takes no for an answer, no matter whom it comes from. And it led to his undoing. Tragically. Like, this is funny. I'm a little more, I'm less skeptical about the validity of the vote than Richard is. And I I've have, have had a lot of arguments with friends. I actually had to appear at a town hall meeting for a moderate Republican member of Congress because he was getting attacked so much by his constituents over this stuff that he asked me to show up on Zoom. He needed a right-wing radical. He does. He asked me to go through. I I went through all of these claims of the videos and the statistical anomalies and so on and so forth. And, you know, I I don't want to bore everybody with this, but but one thing that – because it goes to the call – uh, if, if you go back and look at the transcript of the call between Trump and the Secretary of State closely, it actually is a little reassuring because the Secretary of State actually discusses a lot of these cases that people bring forward because Trump does raise them. And one thing people may not have noticed, I didn't see any media pick up on this, is that he several times, the, the Secretary of State several times said that the FBI had actually shown up and conducted forensic and in-person uh, investigations and questioned uh, questioned election workers in a lot of these cases of fraud, like with the videos and the files and, and the FBI, uh, you know, which has every incentive. And these Republican office holders in Georgia and Arizona places have every incentive to uncover any kind of wrongdoing. They actually found that uh, the rules have been followed and there had been no election fraud or vote fraud. I, I actually came away after reading that conversation much more reassured. I mean, I think that's actually wonderful news. I mean, my point about all of this is, uh, to some extent, given the fact that Trump goes into a tirade, given the stuff is out there, um, I would not rather that this thing be disclosed in these private conversations. I don't know what Raffensperger did in terms of making this public and so forth. Uh, but I think, in effect, that uh, given the extraordinary onslaught that came, a public statement about what the evidence was and how these charges were to be handled would have been very appropriate. Uh, the one thing I do not like to see is a blanket denial of fraud when there's specific charges of fraud. And, and so this may just be a matter of publication and legitimacy and i certainly hope john that you are absolutely right on the merit but you know but, richard as you know like the justice department uh, when they investigate somebody or something and they don't find any charges there the general rules you shouldn't say something but i agree with you in this case it might not be a bad idea for the justice department to waive that rule and say, I mean, we looked at you know 500 cases and we did this and you know but, but i think that's what Barr was trying to do when he said we uncovered no evidence of voter fraud for and, people uh, who are curious about this question there actually there is a good resource on this it, it doesn't get to the fbi investigations but it gets to the court cases which is that Uh, Liz Cheney's office put out an an annotated review, basically, of all of these cases. And it runs to, I don't know how many pages it runs to. It's at least a dozen, probably. But that is probably thus far, and shame on the media for not having done this, but that is probably the best one-stop shopping if you want to if you want to review this. Yeah, the problem is that you in these, you know, when you look at these cases, I've been following the complaints and the decisions. A lot of them are procedurally I mean, it's just a lot of bad lawyering went on that they're not brought properly. Right. A lot of the cases the courts don't reach the evidence. So this is the problem. And I, I faced this at this interesting town hall is that people were <laughs> essentially saying, Prove to me that nothing illegal ever happened throughout the country in every electoral place. right? Like that's not unproven. the right question. Yeah, that, but that's what right. they're but that's what they're essentially I asking. Mean, when, when, is, it, prove the to way me you don't 
don't beat your spouse ever, <laughs> right? Like it's, well, how do you disprove something like that? So the, the, a lot of these claims come up on the internet. They're, you know, they're viral. You don't know where these videos come right. from. People just make crazy allegations, which are not true. How do you disprove things which are just completely made up? Right. That's yeah, what's and, a lot and, of- and, and you are right. Look, one of the rules as we go back to civil procedure is that you always make allegations. Wait, is of it American or Roman? Uh, this is American <laughs> civil procedure. Although the Roman rules were actually oh, no. very similar. Oh, no. Look what you did, John. John, I mean, we, we can go back to the rules on the exceptio doli and so forth later on. Yes, but we can. Uh, the basic principle is that if you want to make allegations of fraud, it's such a serious charge, you must make it specifically. And when it's made specifically, you can not accept the general denial. And, and so the way in which this public debate went on was, was, I think, somewhat disconcerting. I think the Trump lawyers were probably terrible in the way in which they handled this. Um, if One of the interesting things which supports what you said, John, is nobody that I have seen when they read any of these decisions, including many by Trump judges, said, hey, you know, this really is full of holes. Um, the basic judi- judiciary seems to be fine. So all of the tax that have to be made would have to be made on the interior administrative processes before you get to court, and they just didn't do it. But uh, the point of this is once you get to the point of Pence, this is over. And I think it was over once you got to the point where Raffensperger said, I've done all of this stuff and I've thought about it. Maybe you could have handled the publicity greater, but Trump is just an abusive personality. It requires states to to resolve these disputes. And and they should have done, and they seem to have done it. And they did. I mean, and then the vice president's only involved if there's some weird outcome where like a state government has collapsed, which is what we saw in 1876, but not since. Let me ask you guys one last thing about this, because then we should we should move on. It's very strange. I mean, normally at this point in an election cycle, we're all talking about what's happening with the next administration. But yeah, I'm sure you like I'm sure no American until today knew that there was a ceremony and a date where you counted the electoral votes in Congress. Right. And, and <laughs> that, that includes me. To this point, I mean, really? <laughs> oh, see, I've been counting down the days for this state. <laughs> the, la- the last thing that I'll ask you guys on this, and Richard, I'll start with you. There have been suggestions recently that President Trump's behavior has exposed some institutional weaknesses that need to be remedied. So we're, we're hearing again rumors that the president may pardon himself, members of his family, members of his administration. Uh, some people have suggested that the pardon power needs to be hemmed in. There have also been some suggestions that the transition period between administrations should be narrowed from the two and a half months that it currently takes, which, of course, we've we've done before in the past. As you mentioned earlier, it used to go through March, partially just because of logistical concerns. Yes. So I- any merit to those arguments, or is it a mistake to extrapolate from the peculiar characteristics of Donald Trump, this edge case, to these more enduring structural questions. Uh, this goes back to the point about custom uses in practice. If uh, practices work 98% of the time and breaks down with a once in a lifetime or multiple lifetimes president like Donald Trump, you don't make major institutional changes, particularly if the system, however awkward it is, has been able to hold up. Um, look, there are going to be abuses of the pardon powers. They started very early on in these cases. Uh, Bill Clinton did similar kinds of things about this. Uh, there was a real scandal in the Obama administration, a lot of uneasiness about the way in which he handled the pardon cases, although they never had to do with individuals in quite the same fashion. 
Um, the alternative arrangements aren't very good either in many cases. Uh, that is, if you start saying that there has to be a review process, it could slow things up to an inordinate amount. If Congress gets to override, uh, there could be all sorts of political hankering at two stages instead of one. Uh, so my view about this is I would just sort of let it ride, hold my fund, and, and go back and say, uh, this is why we need enlightened statesmen at the helm. I mean, you can do okay with a bad congressman, congressman, woman or two, uh, you get a bad president, no matter what set of institutional constraints we have. If you concentrate that much power in the hands of a single person, uh, you're asking for trouble, no matter what your legal arrangements. On the second point, no, I do not think we should move this up further. Uh, Remember, there's going to be in the interim period, not just the transition, but you have vote certifications. You had Bush v. Gore in similar cases. Uh, That was not resolved until, I believe it was December 8th, 2000. Um, And so you had basically about five five weeks and you need to run the transition and so forth. What I think we need to do is to impress upon everybody on the inside and on the outside uh, that transitions are very treacherous times and that we really now want a social norm, which means that full cooperation at a relatively early time is going to be given. And remember, you know, Michael Flynn got into trouble during the transition, right? I'm not mistaken about that. And that was exactly the kind of thing that you did not want to see that happen. And when people start invoking the Logan Act and various other kinds of stuff like that, you knew that something was wrong there. So, I mean, this is not a defense of Donald Trump. It's not an excuse for Donald Trump in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but uh, before the Democrats, you know, start saying that it's all evil on one side, uh, heal thyself, look at thyself, and realize that you too have engaged in a series of practices uh, that throughout the Trump years were, in fact, I think, highly dubious and highly destructive of the way in which this country ran. Uh, so I will end on this very profound note. Two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, but just because the Trump wrongs are bigger given what happened in the last couple of days. It doesn't mean that some of the democratic behaviors are things that should be treated as being prescient. They should be treated as having been mistaken and being malicious in all too many cases. John, I want to move to some Biden material, but before that, any any difference from Richard on those structural questions? I I, I guess so. I agree with him on the bottom line, but I, I don't I think the system is extremely resilient, and I think it just proved it. I mean, you had an extraordinary set of circumstances. You had a president, you know, questioning the outcome of the election, and the system still worked. And I, so I, I tend to think that these claims that it was almost a coup, almost a system, but I tend to think these are uh, exaggerations and I, and sometimes often preludes to radical reforms, which could be worse than the problem. It reminds me again of Watergate. There, there you saw similar claims. The system worked then too. And to me, in some ways, the Watergate quote unquote reforms uh, seriously damaged the constitutional system and took year. It took you know till well into President Reagan's term, if ever, to fix. I worry we're going to make that mistake now. Instead, I say it goes to your point, Troy. You had someone who's on the extreme here. Um, the system is resilient. It still worked. We still had an election. The votes still counted. All the things President Trump tried to do did not change the outcome. Why should we engage in radical surgery to fix this alleged uh, problem when the system worked as it was supposed to work? Okay, so in in the time we have remaining, I do want to get to a few things about the incoming administration. Amazing that they're the afterthought, but we, we got the news earlier this week that uh, Merrick Garland, judge on the D.C. Circuit, as we know, of course, President Obama's failed nominee to replace Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court after his death. 
is going to be Joe Biden's nominee to be attorney general. And John, I'll start with you on this. Two things here. One, the sort of obvious question, how should conservatives feel about this? But two, what do you make of the decision to give, putting just Garland personally aside, to give a job like this to a veteran judge? It's sort of similar to what George W. Bush did with Michael Mukasey in his last few years in office, although Mukasey was a judge at the trial level. But we don't see it that often. I, I kind of like it. What, what's your take? I, I do, too. I mean, you might remember uh, Richard and I talked about him when he was nominated to take Justice Scalia's place. And at the time, I said, you know, he was probably the most conservative uh, nominee for the Supreme Court from a Democratic president since uh, the early 1960s with Byron White. Uh, He's a Garland is a, you know, a sort of left of center person who made his career as a prosecutor in the Justice Department in the early 90s, uh, going after uh, terrorists and bombers. And so he's a, I I think it's a good choice. A judge might be particularly a good choice here if Biden is worried about the kinds of cases that could potentially draw him in. Uh, Think about what this next attorney general, and this goes to your second point, Troy. Imagine what this next attorney general has to decide, no matter who it is, whether it's Garland or somebody else. Um, What do you do with the Hunter Biden probe? What do you do about uh, uh, probes into the beginning of Crossfire Hurricane? that are still going on with the U.S. attorney up in Connecticut, who's been designated as special counsel. Uh, what do you do with President Trump? <laughs> what do you do with all the things that have been going on this week, not just this week, but also with the elections? Are you going to have any prosecutions arise out of there? So it might be actually in Biden's best interest for there to be a fellow, a man or woman who's attorney general, who's not going to be so ideologically wedded to either side and who Biden can say, look, I wash my hands of it. I'm letting this guy do it. It's not up to me. That might actually be the best thing for uh, Biden politically. Uh, even if, you know, constitutionally, of course, as I've argued, uh, the president is the one who's chief, you know, is ultimately on the Constitution, uh, the chief enforcer of the law and the attorney general works for them. Biden can start out his term by saying, I'm going to give a lot of independence to uh, Garland, who is a judge, who's used to being independent, who maybe we can, we'll say will resign if he thinks the president interferes too much in the decision. Uh, all these series of really difficult, any one of those would be you know, career defining for an attorney general. And Garland, if he's confirmed, he's going to have four or five of them to decide in his first year in office. Um, look, I think this is a splendid choice. I think it's probably the best nomination that Biden has made. Um, I think it's also a kind of a nice tribute to uh, Merrick Garland. And I would hope that under these circumstances that the first endorsement of his nomination would come from Mitch McConnell. Uh, the reason is the objections to Biden rather to uh, Garland back in 2016, had nothing to do with the person. It had to do with the control of the Supreme Court. There were no hearings. There were no character assassinations. Um, And I think that the Republicans' view is that a term of a Supreme Court justice exceeds the current term. And so we have a real strong interest in seeing it go our way, just as the Democrats would take exactly the same position if they were in control. But an attorney general only serves for the current president. And I think that as a matter of practice, practice, not as a matter of legal standard, you always show greater deference. But in this case, you don't need deference in order to make this work. 
Uh, why don't you need deference? Because this is obviously an astoundingly well-qualified human being, and I think everybody should believe that somebody like him is handling it. I should also say that I know quite well, and I've worked with Lisa Monaco, one of my former students, who's the deputy attorney general, and I give her the same kind of vote of confidence and, and sort of endorsement. Uh, so the two top positions in the Justice Department, I think, are in good hands, and we hope that this will lead to really sensible dispositions on some very harrowing kinds of matters. As I said, I'm not in favor of vengeance after things have gone on. I think that there are other things that have to be done. The ordinary course of business should not be absolutely overwhelmed by trying to get the last measure of revenge against a, a Donald Trump. I think he will suffer enough, and I think, in effect, that these are the two ablest people you could imagine uh, taking the lead in the department, and I wish them the very best of luck. You know, a few months ago, uh, we had a lost show, The Machinated, and on that show, we discussed the prospect of statehood for Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., which is something that Republicans are nervous about again now, that Democrats are going to have majorities in both houses of Congress, slim as it may be in the Senate. And, um, John, I'm particularly curious about D.C., because there's long been this argument over the constitutionality of D.C. statehood, one of the consequences of which is that the bill for it in Congress would preserve the mall and the area that houses the White House and the Capitol building and the Supreme Court as a federal district, but would convert the rest of the current territory into its own state. Does that pass muster? Is that is that legal? Also, I mean, is it desirable? I, I'm a very, very skeptical of these proposals to make any part of D.C. a state or to make Puerto Rico a state. Uh, you know, these ideas are now coming to the fore again after the campaign because uh, Democrats won the two seats in Georgia. Of course, first, you'd have to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. Uh, Joe Manchin, of course, claimed he wouldn't vote to do that. But let's see if he does or not. Uh, keep let's see if he keeps his promise or not. So first, you have to get rid of the filibuster, uh, and, which would be extraordinary if you were to do it by fifty-fifty with the vice president casting yeah. the tiebreaker ballot. Right? At least you'd want something close to the original filibuster amount as a matter of Senate practice and tradition. Uh, you know, this is a, a obvious effort to get around the uh, this, the creation of the District of Columbia in the Constitution, which does not talk about and contemplate the idea that this federal district could ever become a state. And there are good reasons for that, because you wouldn't want uh, the authorities of a state controlling the territory where the capital uh, rests. I mean, you'd always want that to be under uh, federal control. I and mean, the founders created it for that purpose. Um, so the weird thing is, uh, it seems to me, I'm not quite sure about this. I'd have to go back and look, but I'm not sure. So, so suppose, you know, this was land given to the district to go to Washington by Virginia and Maryland. And there right. was this time in the past where, uh, for example, what's in Arlington and Alexandria, Virginia were part of that, and I believe they were they given were retroceded. Back. Yeah, yeah, they were retroceded by Washington by the federal government. They didn't sort of become federal territory to which could have been created a state. They were given back to the state, but I'm not sure whether that was constitutionally required. I, I'm actually, I'd have to, I'd have to think about if um, this legislation um, gave up more property of D.C. Would it actually not go back to Virginia and Maryland? Uh, yes, it uh, would, I think. Yeah, but the Constitution doesn't specifically discuss this, so it's interesting. The second thing is this is just going to – and I don't – I think the people who are in favor of this uh, forget 
other parts of the Constitution, because this would set off an escalation. Because there's another part of the Constitution which says that you can also create new states out, out of, of old the states. yeah out of old states. So if I'm the Republicans and this gets jammed down my throat this time, well then next time the Republicans are power, I'm going to turn Texas into eight states. Right? Like <laughs> there's actually an argument that Texas already in its in its article of annexation has the ability without further act of Congress to make itself four. There's a provision states. in there, I think, for five in their article. <laughs> yeah. And and John Nance Garner, when he was the speaker of the House, pushed for this assiduously. Yeah. And, and, and so think about it. Man, now look, maybe this would be better in the long run. I'm all for decentralized government. So to have like a hundred states might be better than having fifty states. But you start this. Uh, my point is, this goes to Richard's point. Uh, on this point, I do agree with him. There are areas where political practice and tradition filling in the things that the Constitution did not address uh, has created important guard guardrails on democracy to tamp it, to, to tamp down mob democracy or direct democracy. And the idea of adding new states to the union in pairs so that it doesn't upset the partisan balance in the federal government is a practice that's been around for a long time, and I think. It's an it's a, been a valuable one, and to sort of ram down D.C. and Puerto Rico too, as states without any you know balancing out states would be. I think that would start off an escalatory spiral that would be unhealthy for our democracy. Um, unhealthy is the word, I think. It's also this is very similar to stacking the Supreme Court um, yes, or packing exactly. it, where you have essentially nine justices by statute since about 1870, give or take a year. And I mean, you could change this under the Constitution, but it would be a disaster to current practice. I mean, the Constitution um, is a very complex document. There are many gaps in it that only become apparent when there's deep disagreements. And I think uniform practices the only reliable test that you can do to resolve these things. There's no originalist argument that can handle these things because it turns out the text is not completely informative about what's going on. And it turns out that the ad hoc arguments are likely going to be completely opportunistic. And once one side does it, the other side will do it. Um, I think, in effect, that we should just keep things as they are. I feel the same way about the Electoral College. Not that I would ever put it into place necessarily if it was the first time that we were trying to do it. Uh, but I do think, in effect, that tradition in this stuff is really extremely important. Um, so I, I am just all against this. And, and of course, what makes this really dangerous is that uh, every state gets two senators regardless. And so what happens is the proliferation of states will necessarily improve the power of those people who start to create them. Um, so maybe we should create two states out of Wyoming, right? So we could do exactly the same thing. Uh, this is basically playing with fire. The Democrats ought not to do it. And this is one of the consequences that you get when the hatred becomes so intense and so personal uh, that people start to think about these in individual terms when they should start thinking about these things in institutional terms. Uh, many of the Democrats have said, quite rightly in my view, that the danger that you see with uh, Donald Trump is he's not a respecter of institutional protocols, practices, comedy, and the like, and that what he's done is he's upset all of these traditional arrangements. All of that is true in many ways. Uh, the last thing you want to do is to see the Democrats imitate the worst features of Donald Trump in an effort to exact some kind of uh, resentment against him. I would hope that the popular sentiment would be strongly against that. I think that it is. I mean, let us not forget 
that notwithstanding the way in which these votes have come out, <clears throat> certainly if you put aside the Georgia election on the Senate, which is there, everybody made predictions that this was going to be far more liberal than it was. I think there was one poll which announced that there were 26 swing seats in the House of Representatives. And <clears throat> when the dust settled, every one of those particular swing seats uh, went Republican. And I think the Democrats should be aware of that. And I also think that this may help is that the current crop of Democrats is likely to be a bit more conservative, not only smaller in number of the House, and probably a tad bit more conservative and maybe even in the Senate. Uh, Biden has both instincts about it, but the correct thing under these circumstances circumstances is not to push this thing forward. And Miss Pelosi could be every bit as destructive of Donald Trump if she thinks that the reform agenda that she wants to put forward is something which is designed to upset settled practices about how we do various kinds of things in the United States for 150 or for 200 years. Probably worth noting to that point, Richard, that a couple of these Democrats who have been elected to the Senate this time around, both Raphael Warnock in Georgia and Mark Kelly in Arizona, one special election. So even if they are true blue progressives in their heart of hearts, they got to run for re-election again in two years. Um, all right. So we don't have much time left, but uh, a couple things I want to get you to, and then we'll we'll close up shop. There is already talk now, since Democrats have a Senate majority, that we are going to see the retirement of Justice Breyer sometimes. And Justice Breyer is 82. He's been on the court for 26 years. The thinking is it probably happens this year so that they keep it away from the midterms and capitalize on those really, really narrow margins in the Senate. The woman who everyone is talking about as the most likely candidate for the seat is Leandra Kruger, who's on the California Supreme Court. Biden has said he wanted to put the first black woman on the court. She fits that bill. She's only 44. A clerk for Justice Stevens was in the Obama Justice Department. I, I open this to either of you, but John, I'll I'll start with you. Thoughts on a potential retirement for Justice Breyer or Leandra Kruger, to the extent that you know anything about her? I've seen already the discussions in the liberal media and blogs about uh, Justice Breyer retiring. And I think this comes from uh, they're not wanting to repeat what happened with Justice Ginsburg. Of course, Justice Ginsburg, you know, had plenty of time to retire during the Obama years, especially Obama's second uh, term, and she chose not to, and then Donald Trump ended up filling the seat. So you, you've seen these uh, you know, left-wing uh, lawyers and academics and journalists making this argument that Breyer should try to retire, uh, especially this first year, while the Democrats have a majority in the Senate thanks to uh, Vice President Harris's uh, tie-breaking vote, and they might lose the Senate in two years. So they don't want to leave anything to chance. Justice Breyer has been there since uh, the first Clinton. Yes. The first Clinton. 1993 or so. Yeah. 95, maybe, I think maybe uh, Ginsburg, I think was 93. Right? Yeah. He was a year later, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, uh, you know, by the way, famously, he uh, didn't get that first, uh, the Ginsburg seat first because he had just, I believe what had the story was that he had come to his White House interview after having been in a bicycle accident in Harvard Square. Serves him right for riding a bicycle in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the middle of the winter. But he was so out of sorts, apparently, he did very badly in his interview. But the second time around was a charm. Um, I, I totally, as a matter of politics, it makes complete sense to me that uh, Justice Breyer consider retiring uh, now. Why leave things to chance? Uh, although I think it's also inappropriate uh, for people to push him around on it either. It's up to him and his, it's his decision alone. I, I um, haven't read the, her opinions closely, but I do know friends of mine who've 
you know, who served in the Solicitor General's office and people who watch uh, California legal politics and affairs closely uh, say very good things about Justice Kruger. And uh, she seems to be someone who's left to center, but she's by no means a kind of uh, woke uh, person who believes in using the law to carry out revolution. I would imagine she might be somewhat more to the center than uh, Justice Sotomayor and probably closer to Alega Kagan, who's also was, uh, you know, Solicitor General. And I think working the Solicitor General's office, they become much more technicians of the law, much more believers of in precedent because they spend all their days trying to persuade the Supreme Court based on the Supreme Court's own precedents uh, to find for their client, who is the United States government. And so I think that kind of tamps down on radicalism and revolutionaries. Uh, if you're a revolutionary radical, you don't go work in the Solicitor General's office in the first place. So I, I you know, I think I, I just hate the idea that a president gets up and says, I'm going to limit my uh, selection to one gender or one race when they pick a justice. That's the only thing I would uh, that's the only thing I, I, I have trouble with in this. Yeah, John and I have learned to swallow hard when it comes to identity politics. Um, <laughs> I do not know anything about uh, this woman. I, the only thing I could say is that, generally speaking, most people think individual members of the California Supreme Court have very considerable abilities. The concerns with the California Supreme Court is that they are all of the same ideological disposition, and so that what you don't get there is some kind of representative of the cross-currents that you would need to have. Um, but the thing that troubles me most is not that she might be the replacement. I think it's wrong for people to publicly try to basically tell uh, Justice Bry that we want you to leave. Um, I think, by and large, the independence of the judiciary does not get served by that kind of stuff. And I think inevitably there's going to be the, oh, we have to have a black woman to replace a white Jewish man. And so we're going to start to get some of these issues associated with the race in terms of what's going on here. And, and I think that that's not generally good. Uh, one of the things that everybody has to remember is that every justice of the United States Supreme Court is a justice for all the people in the United States, not just for one party. And and so forth. It's very hard to keep these things in mind today. I have no idea of the kinds of statements that Biden has or will make with respect to this, but I hope he will not treat this as another reason to go back to issues like George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. I think, in effect, that the Supreme Court covers a vast array of issues, and I would be as curious to know what her views are on bankruptcy and antitrust and immigration as I are on race relationships. If she is nominated, my general view is to always support the nominations that come forward not to oppose them. It takes a great deal to get me to go out of that particular uh, mindset. So that's not what the issue is. It, what troubles me is the atmospherics of this and the potential for all sorts of divisive behavior coming in that will make her position even harder than it ought to be. Final question, guys. Uh, same one I asked you exactly four years ago. We've done, what, almost 50 shows during the Trump years, and it, it's been whiplash inducing all the way. Um, who knows what's going to happen in the 12 days we have left. But the, the next time we'll be together, Joe Biden is going to be the president of the United States. Looking back on the last four years, your final thoughts on Donald Trump and his legacy, specifically on the kind of issues we talk about on this show, but also more broadly. Um, John, I'll start with you. Oh, what a <laughs> just way to lay that you on me. You had no book, idea. Man. No idea. You wrote <laughs> It's an interesting uh, 
question uh, to look back on what did Trump mean? Uh, so, uh, you know, as I, I think many people have said, I think it's true, Trump is more um, an, eff an effect, not a cause. I mean, he did reflect or he gave vent to the anger and discontent that a large portion of our population have about the way our politics and economy were working. And even though he is leaving the scene in this, uh, you know, disgraceful way, uh, he has, I think, permanently changed our politics. Uh, I, you do have the feeling that we reached a point where there is a big shift, uh, that we're in the middle of it. And so I think his effect on the presidency and on the Constitution and on the law is similar to the way other presidents in times of these kinds of transitions uh, have affected those things. So think about Ronald Reagan, think about FDR, Lincoln, Jackson. Uh, these are all presidents who also uh, came out and were part of a change because uh, the people wanted a different kind of system. And so in all those situations, as with Trump, presidents ended up in some ways going back to the basic roots of their power. I think President Trump uh, did that in many ways, whether it was you know, the meaning of the commander in chief power, the meaning of being in charge of law enforcement, uh, the control over appointments. I mean, he, in some ways, he's, and this is, at, at times it's good, at times it's bad, as Richard is pointing out in this call. He's sort of stripped away the uh, practice, you know, sort of like a varnish on the Constitution. You know, the practices and customs have been built on top of the Constitution. And sometimes he's forced us to return back to the original language. And sometimes that's very different than the practices and the customs that have grown up over time. And that happens periodically in our history. I think that's uh, what I would say about Trump in the end is that because he represented this extreme discontent and anger, it caused him and caused our system to reexamine and in many ways disrupt a lot of these uh, practices. At the same time, it's not just discontent. I also think part of what it is is a change in technology, and this will get into some of the news that's going on uh, right now, just this minute, is uh, some of the things that have happened is uh, the response of a system that has grown old and somewhat obsolete and can't handle the new information revolution we have, just like in some ways the Constitution and the practices we had didn't really fit the Industrial Revolution or invent, fit nationalization. And it wasn't until the New Deal that the system restructured in order to adapt. And I would say right now we have a government and a system that does not fit well for regulation of the new information revolution. So just to take, for example, so we just saw there's this news coming across the wire now that uh, Twitter has now permanently banned Donald Trump. Now, this doesn't fit under the old system of the, uh, you know, so regulating the national industrial economy where we have a strict distinction between public and private, where uh, the First Amendment and free speech only applies to the government. And private actors are free to do what they want. They're free to discriminate as they like. They don't have to let people onto their property or use their property gifts to engage in speech they disagree with. Um, nevertheless, a lot of people are going to feel that Facebook and Twitter and all these platforms that should have come to have enormous power in our country uh, shouldn't be able to discriminate against people and single them out for treatment. Uh, and so it just reminds me, like, well, here's an example. Uh, Richard's going to go wild on this because this is his law, the horse, Roman law stuff. But, you know, in the beginning, when railroads first appeared, right, or telegraphs networks started to appear, phone art, they're privately owned too. 
could railroads have said, I don't have to let anybody onto the railroad that I don't feel like. I don't have to let someone use my telegraph network that I don't feel like. And, you know, under the constitutional law of the beginnings of that revolution, they would have been perfectly correct because no. you, don't, you don't have to let anyone use your system that you don't feel like, right? No. Because it's, your, it's privately owned. It's your no. system. But no, the no, law no, changed. No. Yeah, that's right, Richard. The law changed, and now you you know you can't discriminate as common carriers. I don't know why common carriers are constitutional, but that's the way the law. Uh, to, you have to. You can't discriminate against people when they use your private property in these areas. I think we're going to have to reach some kind of accommodation for that with Twitter, Facebook, and Google, etc. But it's going to cause us to have to change how we understand constitutional law and the distinction between public and private. Because I don't think that our system will tolerate allowing Twitter, Facebook, any of these networks for specifically singling out people or ideas and punishing them or ejecting them in some way or discriminating against them. Let me comment, first of all, on the history. Uh, There is no Roman law developing common carriers because we didn't have the mechanism, but the rules with respect to common carriers and the non-discrimination principle date back to Sir Matthew Hale in the 1670s and 80s uh, when he wrote a book Already I'm suspicious. No, no, they got it exactly right. He understood the problem (laughs) about natural monopoly and the non-discrimination rules. And in a case called Almutton, English around 1810. Uh, This was incorporated into English law, and then it was taken over, including the famous phrase virtual monopoly into the United States law in 1876 in the first of the rate regulation cases called Munby, Illinois. Uh, So the tradition of having uh, essentially a non-discrimination rule with respect to monopoly uh, goes back uh, well over uh, 300 years. Uh, The difficulty is do you apply this to non-monopoly institutions? And what does that even mean? And so I actually gave this as a final examination question, and my students completely split down the middle. So I'm taking the private line. You mean they all got it wrong? No, no, no. It turns out this is an old debate. If you go back and you start looking at the civil rights cases having to do with the railroads, Justice Harlan and his dissent, and he was a libertarian, said these are quasi-state institutions, and so they're subject to a kind of a non discrimination kind of principle. And what he was pushing for even then was a definition of state action that went beyond the state denial of what was going on. And so this debate is certainly going to take place. Uh, As ever, you would hope that people would hold their tongues a little bit on this and not push it as hard as they've done. But what makes it so difficult is that you cannot be effective in running a platform on the one hand if you have strong political visions on the other. And so it turns out that the American uh, situation of the fangs and so forth are all in the hands of more or less people to the left of center. I would exclude because I don't know what's going on Microsoft from that, but certainly if it's Tim Cook or or Zuckerberg and so forth, or or Bezos, uh, they're all far to the left. They contribute to the Democratic Party, which creates further anxiety on this point. My own view about Trump is is this has been a very painful experience for somebody like myself. Um, I agree with not all of his decisions. The famous phrase that I use, which I hope will now make it into the English language, is that when you think about his policies, it's Trump a la carte. 
And I think that the things that he did wrong are wrong, independent of his bad behavior towards the end. And that includes, I think, his somewhat hostile attitude with respect to free trade and his rather cavalier treatment of many of the immigration issues. Uh, But I think his impulses towards deregulation in the domestic economy have done exactly what one would hope they have done by freeing things up. It improves the position not only of those at the top, but those at the bottom. And in fact, on this particular issue, his record is better than is Obama's. Uh, uh, More of the wealth increase under Obama went to the top 1% than went under Trump. If you look at the employment numbers for children, uh, that is people under 21 and so forth, minority members, older folks and so forth, a freer labor market means higher participation and higher wages. And one of the reasons I'm so troubled about the Biden presidency is uh, every time he uses the word worker, he puts the word union in front of it, and he is basically backing an obsolete set of industrial monopoly kinds of arrangements, uh, which are completely inapposite for the current kind of age, where a fluidity in employment is what is the essence, not working for 40 years for Ford Motor Company and getting your pin when you retire, having been a union member throughout it. Uh, so I think, in effect, that the arguments that will be made that since Trump is a venial human being, and he certainly has many, many incurable defects, all of his policies were wrong. That's not the case. And as somebody who's constantly trying to you know, walk that delicate line, the great embarrassment of Trump is you have to defend something, and everybody says, but, you know, hey, you believe something that Donald Trump believes, as though it's a, re- a reputation of the argument. So I think the most important thing in terms of what's going forward is that uh, people like myself, um, where we think that the progressive impulses of the Biden administration and will go astray, uh, should be part of the loyal opposition, should be able to attack him and should not be met with the argument, you're just saying what Donald Trump said. Um, I said it before him, and God willing, I will be able to say it after he is out of office. The news that Donald Trump is being kept off of Twitter reminds me of the best thing that Barack Obama ever said which was years and years ago, he was giving a speech that was essentially a roast of Rahm Emanuel. And he told a true story where he said, I think many of you are aware that Rahm, when he was young, was working at a deli and had an accident with a meat slicing machine. And as a result, he lost part of his middle finger. And as a result of that, it rendered him practically mute. <laughs> All right, oh, gentlemen. Well, I mean, I mean, Barack Obama—that uh, is itself a very different and enigmatic story. Yes, which which were passed, and now we're going to be past Donald Trump, and it's on to a new administration, and on, by the way, to the show's ten-year anniversary. That'll be our next episode. We've got something special in the works. Thanks as ever to the two of you, to our producer, Scott Amergut, and to all of you who tune in and have been tuning in for the last 10 years. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.